Good morning and happy days and getting ready for, uh, well, I guess it's October, so what, soon to be Halloween? Is this, the pre, is this a pre-Halloween episode? Is that what this from, is? From the store decorations, pre-Christmas, I think, right? That's that. That's fair. <laughs> uh, that's a fair thing. Yes, I've been in Big Lots recently, and between skeletons and Christmas trees, I guess that's what you get. Uh, hey, everybody, you're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Feenan. I'm your other host, Aaron Hill. How you doing, Michael? I'm doing all right. Uh, folks, if you are enjoying the show, be sure to run by our fantastic sponsors over at porkbun.com. If you go check them out and you're looking for a .design domain name, use the coupon code DRUNKENUX when you check out. And you're going to get a free year of that ho- or of your DNS for that uh, domain, which is kind of awesome, what's, actually. What's, so, what's your .design going to be? I mean, I, I do everything off Fenan at this point because it's always available. <laughs> is it? I've got, I've got Fenan.dev. I've got Fenan.com. I don't have Fenan.net, but... Oh. You should check us out on um on ye old Twitter and your good friend Facebook, both dot com slash drunken UX. And on that Instagram where you cannot find Fienan under the username Fienan, but you will find us as Drunken UX Podcast. And then also connect with us on Slack at drunkenux.com slash Slack and come tell us how great we are or how awesome we are. Whichever one you're feeling. <laughs> right now my my cam image looks like my face is totally eclipsed by the microphone and all you see is like my forehead and hair on top of a microphone (laughs) we need to put some put some googly eyes on the back side of your of your microphone i will i will do that that will happen (laughs) um let's see what else i am drinking this evening i'm uh classy i'm a classy gentleman as the fine folks around town call me so i went to kfc i got myself a Big old cup of sweet tea, and I just keep pouring vodka in it. <laughs> well, I'm I've, a classy gentleman. I've got I've got something similar. I've got vodka. Well, I've been pre gaming, so I'm like three drinks in. I've got vodka with um. Do you know that stuff from Polar? It's called Half and Half. It's like grapefruit and lemonade with seltzer. I think. I mean, the half and half I use is not that. I can tell you that much. It's, yeah, it's not a cream based thing. It's you got. I got it at the grocery store. It's from the Polar Seltzer Company. Anyways, mix that with vodka. It's like real tasty. We'll see about that. Well, if you think, I mean, you're three in. You'll be another three in by the time the show's done. Let's see how <laughs> dangerous it is. Uh, I like. I I too enjoy living dangerously. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about, or this this bi week. Uh, Semi biweekly is a, is a semi month. Yeah, semi monthly and biweekly both mean the same thing. No, uh, they don't. Like, they don't. Or no, semi annually and biannually mean the yes. same thing. The, yeah. Yes. Do we? Do they? I thought yeah. biannually was every other year. Sometimes it is. Oh. Sometimes it's twice a year. It's like depends in, on who's saying it. That's like <laughs> inflammable and inflammable. Yeah, yeah, inflammable and what's the other one? Flam- oh, just just flammable. flammable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, this week, uh, however you want to phrase it, we are talking about uh, a bunch of stuff about images. 
Uh, we, we talk a lot about development and things like that. We haven't dipped into the design side of this world nearly enough recently, so we wanted to sit down and kind of go over from a very basic level up to, you know, some of the different things you can do with some of these formats and, and the tools and why, why you should care mm -hmm. about a lot of these things because uh, there are a lot of tools out there that let you forget about images, you know. You just put your image in and it takes care of it, but if you don't know what it's doing, then you don't know if it's doing it well. It's it's funny how I mean images have been uh kind of an integral part of like a website experience for a long time, like mid nineties onwards. And it's funny how much like stuff has kind of been brought into current times, but was like from the limitations of what we had back in the nineties. Uh, I wanted to share a resource that I found here the other day. It's over at freefrontend.com, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. They, it, It's basically um, just a, a list of HTML and CSS style guides. Okay. We've talked about style guides before, many times. Yeah. And, you know, how they apply to design patterns and reusable components and things like that. This is like that, but it's more about coding styles than it is visual styles or visual patterns right and so if you're working on a project especially something that you're sharing uh, so like thinking about your diaper base Aaron, mm -hmm. you know when people are writing and committing code you you know you want that code to meet a certain spec so that yeah when you look at your project and you're looking at two different modules side by side they don't look you know like they've been obviously written by two different people right so if you're interested in something like that and you're wanting to organize things or you've got a team of people that you're trying to get all on the same page, this can be a really useful source to go in and just look at how other companies are doing it. So we're talking Google's got one in here. The CSS guidelines are in there. Uh, Airbnb has one in here. There's a bunch of different folks, and a lot of them are just stored up on GitHub and are very straightforward. Some of them are very nice, like You've got the uh, HTML5 style guide up is up there. Um, but it gives you those patterns and, and ideas. Like, so if you're trying to write your own, what to model it on, you know, what should I put X in there? You know, does it make sense for me to explain how BEM works for our CSS? Go look at Airbnbs and see how they explain how BEM works in their CSS and copy them. These, these all seem to be very opinionated. And, and I mean that. Oh, um, totally. Not in a bad way, but like having having an opinionated framework is nice because it's decisions are already made for you, and so you can focus more on creating the content itself. And I'm looking yeah. at um, CodeGuide.co right now, and they have um, it has a listing of like you know the syntax and language attribute and uh, character encoding, and then it has things like um, declaration order, don't use import, media query placement. It's all stuff like um, it seems kind of like micromanaging your stuff, but that's sort of what it's for. It, it it makes you realize, right, when you have to work with other people, you all can't be code cowboys. You all can't be doing yeah. your own things and doing things, you know, the way you want to do it, but nobody else is following. Like you, you have to have standards when you're part of a larger project or part of a team. And so that idea of yeah, I agree. They are very opinionated because. Mm -hmm. That company or that project is likely to outlast you. <laughs> so here's here's a good example. The HTML syntax node for codeguide.co 
has don't capitalize tags, including the doc type. Use soft tabs with two spaces. They're the only way to guarantee code renders the same in any environment. Nested elements should be indented once, parentheses, two spaces. Always use double quotes, never single quotes on attributes. Don't include a trailing slash and self-closing elements. The HTML5 specs as they're optional. Don't omit closing tags, e.g. slash li slash body. So these are all like, um, it's just kind of like rules to follow. And I, I don't think, I'm sure a lot of these converge on similar rules, but I don't think any one of them is necessarily like the right way overall. It's just, you pick one that works for you and then you use it. And I think what people will find is that when you get something in, into one of these that starts to work for you, um, the the style guide exists to explain why. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you're yeah if you're gonna do soft tabs you know or something like that or you know if you're using BEM markup and you're explaining the nomenclature you use to define that uh, there the documentation and the style guide is there to give you background and what all this starts feeding into as you learn more about it is you know if you're using an IDE or something like that that supports check style. A lot of what is defined in the style guide will end up in your check style so that the tool you're developing in will start enforcing some of those things. You'll see that oh. a lot when it comes to things like tabs and spacing, new lines. Um, cool. So that, you know, when you're at this organization that's got 20 developers, <laughs> you know, they you need all that code to look the same. You need it to test the same. You need it to you know, output things in a way that makes sense and is consistent when the next intern comes in or, you know, when the next person retires or moves on mm -hmm. to another company. So in my last job, we used uh, Rubocop, which is a, a Ruby gem that is very opinionated about Ruby code style issues. And, um, and it covers some other things too, but mainly it's like, you forgot to put a space here or you forgot to use double quotes or you forgot to... Uh, indent this properly it's really picky but at the same time when you run it it ensures that everyone's code looks more or less similar or more or less the same yeah it's pretty nice and i, I want to look into more check style stuff too because i'm currently playing with I've, I've used adam for years now um adam's been my main code writing tool of choice but this last week i started playing with vs code mm-hmm Everybody's hot on VS Code right now. I hadn't used it yet, so I thought, you know what? I had I had an excuse to try something different, so I was like, I'll go get it and, and play with it. I like it perfectly fine so far, uh, but it also is making me think about, you know, what other things should I be rolling into this mm. that, you know, now that I'm thinking about switching and getting something like code styles and stuff mixed in there for some of the work I'm doing would probably be both beneficial to me and sanity saving for my QA people <laughs> and code reviewers. So if you want to check that out, go to, it's at freefrontend.com. Uh, if you swing by our show notes at drunkenux.com, look up episode 45, uh, and we'll have a link to it down in the resources section of that as well. Go check it out. And if you have a favorite, let us know. Um, or if you've yeah. written one, you know, send us a link. Uh, we'd love to share it with uh, everybody. Or so if you have a, a way of, doing code style enforcement that you or your team uses. Like like I mentioned, yeah. Rubocop. I'm sure there are others. Kind of like linting, but for code style. I'd like to know more about those. Yeah. Uh, Aaron. Yes. A question. Yeah. How do you feel about Photoshop or Illustrator? Oh, man. I go... I, I used to use 
I go way back. I used Aldous Photo Styler and Aldous Page Maker. And then I used Photoshop 3.0. Um, and then up until I think six or seven or CS2, whatever that was. And then I switched to uh, GIMP shortly after that. Or it's called something else now. I got forked, but uh, it's the new, it's the open source Photoshop. So very familiar with them. Love them. Since you're using uh, GIMP, have you played with Inkscape at all? I have a little bit. Um, I don't do a lot with vector art. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I've done a little bit with it, but I tend to stick with uh, rasterized images. So the reason I kind of uh, lead with these questions, because I'm very much the same way. Um, mm-hmm. I remember learning Photoshop in high school, mm-hmm. uh, you know, back, God, in the dark ages, basically, on yeah. On the old candy IMAX with the hockey pucks from right. mice, you know, like yeah, yeah. In fact, fun fact: I still have, I think, all of my homework files from that no class. No shit! Wow, I'm, I'm pretty sure because I've been good at backups over the years, and yeah. I'm about ninety percent sure that there is still a folder in my backups on my external drive that that has just come along every you know every time I move data around, it just huh. gets picked up and hauled with it. Uh, at any rate, I agree with you. I'm very much a raster guy. Yeah. I don't do much vector. Um, and the reality is I'm not a designer. And I want to lead with that before we even get into any of the, this talk. And I, I think, Aaron, you probably agree with me on that. But <laughs> my my art is my code. My art is not art. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, can, I can feel that. I can... I can edit in Photoshop. Like you give me a, like if I'm doing photography, you know, I can go in and and clean up pictures or I do it in Lightroom usually, but that's fine. And I can merge stuff and manipulate it and I I'm I'm okay. I'm functional with Photoshop, but I'm not good at creating right. stuff in it. Yeah, I, there's I I um so I I do a little bit of like recreational art and stuff, uh physical media generally. Uh I do have a Wacom tablet and that's fun to play with sometimes. Oh yeah. But, I like watching time lapses of people doing um, spit, speed paints, so like um, or spit painting. Sometimes it's called. There was a Facebook group I used to be in, and they'd put three or four topics each day, and you could you pick one or more of them, and you take thirty minutes to draw it. And thirty minutes seems like you know not even any time, but the stuff some of these people could do in thirty minutes was just fucking amazing. And they would do time, they would put time lapse videos or it would compress it down to like a five minute video. And you just watch them. And like when you watch it happen, it makes total sense. They just don't make any mistakes. That's what it is. They like, they draw the lines and it just like comes to life on the thing. Where it is like when I do it, I'm like, oh, I'll try this. And it's like, no, that's not right. <laughs> I, I actually have a Wacom as well. And I'm going to tell all of the developers out there listening to this that. Honestly, even if you don't do graphic design, a a digital tablet is still well worth having, even if it's only for the purposes of taking some strain off your wrist. And Jesus Christ, Aaron, <laughs> that's like a four thousand dollar tablet. Uh, it's it's the old style, um, old style Wacom's. It was handed down to me from an artist friend. The one the one that I actually use is a, a more sane. Uh, eight by sixteen into us. I think it's it is like a foot and a half by three foot. <laughs> that's the other one. I I don't use it because I don't have the desk space for it. That's but it, mine. Kind of stays tucked away, but I swap <laughs> in and out with it. I'll use my mouse for a while, but then I'll switch over to the Wacom because mm-hmm. it does. 
it relieves strain on my wrist. It's very nice, and it works just as good once you've gotten the hang of it. So The thing I really love about it is the stylus has those buttons on it, and so like, and you can map them to whatever you want. So like I'll have the one that's right by my pointer finger. So if I if it's a little rocker and if I rock it forwards, it switches to the grab grab command. So I can rock forwards and then pull and then it will move me around the image. And if I rock backwards, I can make it switch to the color picker. And then I can use the reverse of it for the eraser and it switches to the eraser tool. Um and then I have like buttons on the tablet itself mapped to different like brush size and other stuff. Yeah. It's Welcome. really not a sponsor of the Drunken UX podcast. <laughs> no, but if I mean, like, yeah, they're great products. <laughs> so the the thing is, like with images, not everything is about photographs. And mm. we tend to think that way a lot. And we're going to talk that way a lot tonight, quite frankly. But there's a lot of stuff that goes into web design that is visual, but isn't necessarily image based. And so it's good to learn as a developer how to start thinking about images and how they fit into your project mm -hmm. and why it matters. And like things that we used to do with images, and I say used to, I'm going back a decade or more on some of this, but like when you would have an, an actual image on the page, mm -hmm. a lot of websites liked having a drop shadow under them. Or border. Or border. We didn't have that. I mean, we had CSS border for the most part, but not for complicated borders, certainly, or graphical borders. You know, we didn't have right. CSS shadow at that point in time or anything. Yeah. Wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. So for the younger listeners or those who are newer to develop web development, what we had to do in the 90s and in the early 2000s, if you wanted to have a rollover thing like where you hover over a, a button and it changes color or something, not only did you have to have two images for like the on state and the off state, you had to use JavaScript to do it with on mouse over. Yeah. Because... Like, even though we had CSS at some point, it didn't have the hover pseudo class. There's also stuff like arrows. You mm -hmm. know, we don't think about some of this stuff very much, but now with a lot of advanced CSS geometry support, mm -hmm. there are a lot of basic shapes, circles, triangles, arrows, things you can create as a consequence of that available geometry that doesn't require you to make separate yeah. SVGs for everything or separate uh, images for everything. Shit's and wild. It, yeah, and it's hard in some cases and takes some work, but it's uh, it's the kind of thing that, as a developer, it's good to know because, you know, if you have a graphic designer on staff, the odds of them knowing how to write the CSS to make that happen is possibly very small. Like, they may come to you and say, hey, we <laughs> need this to be made, and, you know, we know it can be done in CSS or whatever. Or you may say, oh, I see you made this in here. I can make that with CSS instead. Mm-hmm. And save, you know, an extra image on the page. So that's that's part of why this is an important a, topic for developers. A lot of the newer graphic designers are are having that kind of stuff incorporated into their education. And so um like the the new school graphic designers, not literally the new school like art school, but modern graphic designers, um, do things like SVGs and vector art and other stuff and and they know some css too and how do css yeah. animation i'm all for cross training for what it's worth yeah i think everybody should learn a little css a little javascript whether <laughs> that's what your main job is or not because it is it's it's useful to know what you're creating mm -hmm. and how somebody else is going to be asked to interpret it because um, it can impact the things you make drop shadows are a good example because 
you can create drop shadows in Photoshop that can't be recreated in CSS. Yeah, you can make uh, some, and, some hella drop shadow even. Hella drop shadow is, <laughs> is a possibility. And CSS, you can do a drop shadow, but it may not be hella, and that, that matters. There are two main types of images, and I know this is like graphic design 101, but I'm presuming nothing at this point. <laughs> there are two types of images, raster, vector. That's all you need to remember. Raster is what most images are. It's a picture. Yeah. A photo, anything detailed, anything with, you know, undefined edges in the image. It has pixels. Each pixel has a color. And it looks like something when you zoom out far enough. So, yeah, to that example, the difference, if, if it matters to you, whereas a vector defines lines and shapes mm -hmm. and things, raster is basically saying what every single pixel looks like. Right. Uh, it's very and, specific. you know, we use compression and we use algorithms to determine that and to save it and to make it smaller. But at the end of the day, a raster is rasterizing the image. And so every single pixel, you know, has a color value at the, you know. Rasterized images are, are generally look more photorealistic and they are better with um, complex gradients. Vectors can do gradients if they're simple, um, but those are better for like, um, I'll call them like art images, like logos yeah. and things with like more clear cut edges and simple designs. Yeah. So whereas a raster defines the color of every pixel, vectors are defining everything with math. Yeah. Uh, vectors, vector graphics are just really, really complicated math problems. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know what a good, a good comparison is? Um, a, a rasterized image is like a photograph and a vector art is like a very complicated screen print. Like you, you have to have defined shapes. Each one can right. be a color, but you can layer them. You can create a complicated looking image, but it's not quite the same as what a photo would. Like you can't make a photograph using screen printing. Yeah. And so as a consequence, these have very different applications. Raster is very good for anything that's like, say, a photo. If you zoom them, mm -hmm. you're going to make them blurry. Yeah. Because as you get bigger with it, you know, it can't add data. It can't, you know, there are, there are certainly tools that will try to interpolate data. So if you make it bigger, it'll try to make it look better. But mm. it still will make it fuzzier because it's still making up image data at that point. Right. Vectors you can blow up because it's math, the equation just scales. And right. so your smooth line at one resolution is still a smooth line at a huge resolution or a small resolution. So why does this matter? It's a very simple concept, and it's something that you'll hear repeated ad nauseum at every conference, in every paper. <laughs> it's that milliseconds matter. There's a piece of research Google put out. It was 2017 was, I think, the most recent one. I've got a link to it in the show notes. If your page load time goes from one second to five seconds. Mm -hmm. The probability that the user will bounce will increase 90%. Wow. Yeah. So as you add up images and the reason this matters for images, uh, what we'll talk about here in a second with performance, images are a huge chunk of your site. Mm -hmm. They make up one of the largest chunks of payload for most websites. So if your site is otherwise fast, you may be taking a super fast website and bringing it to a screeching halt because you put a lot of big images on it. A site that I was just working on the other day had a video like on the on the homepage 
and the video was just an MP4, um, maybe like a 30 second loop. And, but it was 22 megabytes. Yeah. 20, 22 megs. Um, it didn't greatly impact load time, but there was just a little bit of stuttering in the, in the beginning. We, we optimized it and got it down to um, six megabytes. And the crazy thing about that was 22 megabytes is roughly the size of the Doom 2 uh, game files. And six megabytes is roughly the size of the Doom 1 game files. <laughs> <laughs> so from a performance standpoint, to put this in context so you kind of understand where we're coming from, I, I went and looked up a few sites. Mm-hmm. Just did this for fun. I did some research. God, it's been probably eight years ago since I did it, um, where I looked at 100 websites, 100 higher-ed websites, and weighed the performance of their home pages, including a breakdown of their image payload. So this mm-hmm. felt very familiar to me. <laughs> Basecamp's website was 428 kilobytes, and okay. 189 of that was images. So for oh. the math nerds out there, that was a 43% ratio. 43% of their entire website was images. Okay. For Apple, it drops. Apple's just under 4 megs and just under 1 meg of images. So 25%, give or take. So wait, in, in these cases... Actually, do, do the next one first. Okay. Uh, NBC News, just under 9 megs. Huge. And keep in mind, news website, they're loading all kinds of JavaScript, all kinds of tracking stuff and everything. Yeah. Image-wise... They were incredibly good. Uh, the NBC News site only had 603 kilobytes of images, which is a 7% ratio. So so in all three of these cases, um, you know, the first one, like Basecamp, you could argue that remaining 200-something uh, kilobytes, probably a mixture of, like, CSS, JavaScript, and HTML. And maybe, 100%, yeah. Yeah. Etsy has a healthy balance. Etsy yeah. had 5.8 megs. 2.7 was images, so that's okay. 46%. They're kind of on the base camp level. And it's yeah. worth pointing out, too, like, at base camp's level, their whole site was 428 kilobytes on load. Yeah. That's incredibly good. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's super small. Like, <laughs> like, I wouldn't go to them and say, you ought to do something about your images. Because overall, I mean, even if they could, and they maybe, I didn't look in to see whether, you know, that stuff was optimized well. But yeah. At that overall size, they're still about twenty five percent of what the average is. The average mm-hmm. is around two gig or two megs per page, so they're right. under a quarter of that overall. So, like their site is incredibly performant, no matter how you slice it. Right. Just for fun, I looked at the Drunken UX website, um, and as a caveat, before I say this, uh, we are running WordPress. I am running just a canned theme on it. Uh, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't build it myself. I didn't have time. Uh, the, you know, what is it, the the cobbler's kids have no shoes kind of thing. <laughs> um, it's very, very canned. Uh, we came in at 2.57 megs, so a little above average there, but only 346 kilobytes of images, 14% ratio. Okay, what's the uh, remainder then? What, what's the 86%? Because we're not putting video on there. So JavaScript made up three times what our images were. No shit? Were, and that's, that's part of the WordPress problem. All of the stuff getting loaded by plugins, by you know jQuery, wow. by the theme, all of this stuff to support all of these things that you probably don't need. And I've never done an optimization pass. I I am confident I could get our size down under a meg. Yeah, I mean, sure, but wow, what, holy crap! 
Which, uh, I'm going to stick a pin in this, and before we started rolling tape, Aaron and I were talking about the end of the year and, and season yeah. three and all this. A fun topic it would be overall optimizing a website, and I think we should use the Drunken UX website as oh, a yeah. case. Yeah, that'd be cool. And do a before and after. I Yeah. So keep me honest on that, uh, kind <laughs> listeners. Make sure we come back and do that for you at some point. <laughs> Um, let's see. So I, I mentioned the average, uh, if you go over to HTTP archive.org, they have uh, a page weight, uh, report. Okay. So as they, as the HTTP archive goes through and crawls pages, they store all the information about them and you can go in and query that and get information. The average ratio, I mentioned the average page, page size was two megs. The average ratio is 51%. Okay. So for any given page, you're generally, and if you look at what you know, what I found, um, none of the sites actually got over fifty percent. Mm-hmm. But you had two in the forties, one in the high forties. Um, you know, the other three were twenty-five and under. So you know, average it out to say thirty, thirty-two yeah. percent somewhere in there for an average. So th- my highly unscientific sample of five <laughs> websites didn't make the fifty-one percent, but. It's probably a safe bet. Having having a percentage around fifty percent is probably a good thing. Like, I mean, if you, you want to have Im- some images because they are, say, like having like five hundred kilobytes in images, maybe say ten images, fifty kilobytes each, would be better than having um, fifty ten kilobyte JavaScript files because it's like each one of those is a separate request. Yeah, and. This is part of the argument right behind lazy loading. Mm-hmm. And this is something, isn't, was it Chrome, I think, is the one who is currently experimenting with, like, native lazy loading support. Hmm. Like, like, they are going to take over oh, lazy right. loading pages, which I think is neat. It's like an HTML attribute or something. Like, you can say, like, lazy load or something, and then it will... Yeah, it's something, I, I don't know if it's something the page author has to do, if it's a setting in the browser. I honestly mm-hmm. haven't just looked into it yet. Yeah. Um, there are tools that help. Uh, Gandal is one. I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. They do ex- accessible uh, lazy loading. So just for our listeners, what is lazy loading? So, yeah, lazy loading is when if I've got 10 pictures on a page and they're big, mm. let's say, like, uh, let's say literally I can see one image and you're meant, you know, it's a photography gallery and you're meant to scroll down and each image takes up the whole page. Mm hmm. The other nine images won't load until I've scrolled them into view. And okay. then it'll make the request to go get that image and show it. So that if I only look at the top of the page, I'm not being burdened with the extra payload of the nine images that never even came into my viewport. So what would that be? What would be non-lazy loaded in that case? What would, how would that behave? So non-lazy loaded would be the same website. And all those images load. And so if each image is a meg and there are 10 of them, then you've downloaded 10 megs of data to only consume one. Right. And that's how browsers have worked for years. Well, so another reason, uh, another way things used to work was to save on HTTP requests. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're going to a photo gallery, there's 100 images. Right. Every one of those is an HTTP request. Not a big deal. I mean, the average number of HTTP requests for a web page is like 118 or something like that mm-hmm. right now. And that's that's every request for every JavaScript file, every tracking pixel, every image, the HTML document, everything included in that, all the mm-hmm. tracking modules and everything. Like every time the browser calls 
the server, it's a request. And they happen very quickly. They're extremely efficient, but they do add up. Yeah. And so, again, when you're talking about milliseconds, yeah, it may take, you know, 75 milliseconds to get through all those requests. But if you can cut it in half, then you've cut it in half and you're at 36 milliseconds. So it becomes it becomes a lot more important when you're dealing with a lot of smaller files because the overhead is going to be pretty much the same on each request, regardless of the payload size. So if you're requesting one or two kilobyte files, combining them into a single request is going to save you a lot if you have enough files. But if it's like a hundred kilobyte image, it doesn't really matter. Or a lot of files that request other files yeah. are, are interacting with APIs or doing anything mm-hmm. asynchronously. Like those all, yeah, slow stuff down. And, and if it's yeah. Java, where you get into trouble with JavaScript, and this is what you were kind of talking about with images, you know, yeah. if, it's, if it's blocking JavaScript, if you aren't deferring it or uh, requesting mm-hmm. it asynchronously, it will hold up everything else that's happening until that's done. <laughs> uh, and as I was going to say, I, I'm pretty sure images are non-blocking, at least now. Okay. Yeah. They, they may. They may have been. They certainly. Oh no! Used to you know be. what? They're they're not blocking because it, websites do that really annoying thing where you're about to click on something and then the image finishes loading and the thing you're about to click on gets bumped over like twenty <laughs> pixels. Facebook. So the solution to the HTTP request thing, though, it, talking about old stuff. Do you remember sprite sheets? That was. Yeah, that's like a video game thing, right? Where you yeah. put all the images onto it, one file. We would generate one file with, like, all the icons, all the hover states, and we would have right. one image so that instead of requesting 20 different images in our uh, style sheet, we request the one. And mm-hmm. based on what you were showing, you would position that as a background. So you would say, you right. know, like, that, you know, this is, you know, a, an icon or a div or whatever that's 48 by 48 pixels. And... The background is positioned, you know, 20 top and 60 left. Right. And then on right. hover, you would change it to uh, to 68 down and whatever. Right. That's how you handled your... So you were talking earlier about when you did hover states. We used to do them with JavaScript on mouse over and all that. <laughs> so that evolved in CSS, and we just used the hover state, the hover pseudo selector in CSS, and had a sprite sheet that moved it around. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Oh, and we also we also had to do when we used to do that because you didn't want to have where you would hover over something and then the, you had to wait for the new image to load for the hover state. So there was what was the trick? You had to like you had to preload the images, but you did that by like putting the images right. into JavaScript variables yeah. or something. Yeah, you would, yeah you would put a script block in your head. Yeah, and reference all those images to force the HTTP request. Because remember what we were saying about yeah. JavaScript, especially before we had defer and async and all that, mm-hmm. JavaScript used to be a blocking action. So right. it would go through and it would fetch all those images and it would hold up the whole page just so you didn't <laughs> have to wait on a hover state. Talk about robbing Peter to pay Paul. <laughs> yeah, we just, it, would, it would do that so it would cache them and then that way the page would be more responsive. But, I mean, at the same time, though, like, I mean, pages loaded so slowly back then that... Yeah, it made a lot more of a difference than it makes now. But that's no reason not to to be efficient. (laughs) And we've seen this fight, and and we've argued about it in web development in particular for ages. It used to be a computing problem. Like, when back in the days of, you know, 
386s, 486s, or Apple IIe's even, you know, back when people were first getting started at their first computer and they're wanting to write a program, but you only had eight kilobytes of memory and, <laughs> you know, a kilobyte of, of L1 cache and you're trying to figure out how do I store all this and, and keep it running? You know, it forced you to optimize and be efficient. And we've kind of got a curse of riches with all the computing power we have. Yeah. There's not a lot of consequence to writing bad JavaScript or loading big images. I've got a fiber connection in my house now. I've got a gigabit connection. Holy I, shit, dude. I don't wait on images ever you're, for the most you're part. In, you're in Kansas. What the fuck? I, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got 100 megabit. I'm not complaining, but dude. <laughs> and it's cheaper than my cable was. Oh, my uh, God. I hate you. <laughs> join the list. Um, so let's talk about all the different types of images now yeah. kind of roll through what these are and, and where they're useful the the big sort of OG file format is as Aaron would say the JIF the JIF the, oh JIF I have to I have to use like a the G what is, is that like that's like not a, a soft G that's a it's like a mirage like the it's like a squishy G yeah yeah 8 bit True mm -hmm. 8-bit, 256 color palette, can be any 256 colors um, that yeah. are, you know, hex represent or representable, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so think about, like, Nintendo, basically. Right. It, it has the Nintendo palette. Yeah. But the other big thing, and oddly, the, the thing that I have never fully understood about GIFs is that they, uh, and if, if you tell me it's GIF, I will fight you. If you tell me it's Jive, I'm going to laugh and call you Aaron. <laughs> that it supports animations. Yes. And it's one of the oldest image formats that's still in use today outside of bitmaps. Um, and we're not going to talk about bitmaps. Don't worry about them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a link in the show notes. Jesus, that's loud. Put a link in the show notes for this talk from the GDC by Mark Ferrari. And if you don't know him by name... I'm sure you've seen his art if you've ever played any of the early computer like Lucasfilm games or LucasArts games like Loom or Secret of Monkey Island or uh, what was the other one? Oh, uh, Zack the Kraken, I think. I like you're just um, making up names right now. <laughs> all the old like scum games like the point and click, you know, talk to this guy, uh, grab this item, King's Quest, that kind of thing. I don't think he worked in King's Quest, but he I, suit Larry. I think, yeah, like that kind of game. Yeah. Um I mean, what? <laughs> so he he but he like he created this digital art format. He was an artist by trade that learned how to do it on computers. And the stuff he does with like Jifes, especially animated Jifes, is phenomenal. I mean, he's working with a very limited palette. I think he was the one that invented the dithering technique with images. Oh yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. The the talk is like it looks like it's an hour and a half long. So worth it. It's, uh, it'll be in the show notes. Check it out. It's I will really do these cool. things you ask. At any rate, this is still a widely used format for the most part. Um, not good for photos, obviously, because of that limited color palette, but great for icons. Great if you need transparency but don't need uh, true alpha, which means uh, like a... It it lets you have null pixels, basically, so things yes. can happen behind it or anything. 
but it doesn't support uh, like fading, so to speak. Right. Like it's either it's either on or off, black or or not black. Do Do you remember um, Wolfenstein 3D? I do remember Wolfenstein uh, so 3, the third. I had I had an editor for that where you could edit the game art files. And I learned that's what I learned about transparency because the all of the sprites for the game all had it was like a bright magenta color that was the transparent hue yeah for the files and like then a, so it was like, keyed it was a key color yeah yeah it was yeah like chroma key that's actually a great that's a great comparison um, but yeah it was just every pixel like there was no gradients no fading or anything no no ghostly transparencies it was either like on the screen or not. Yeah, which unfortunately hurts the the GIF usability, you know, mm-hmm. as, as a transparency tool because it makes it feel very icky. Mm-hmm. Unless the thing you're showing actually does have a very hard edge like an icon. Yeah. You know, if, if you're trying to do something that, like let's say it's a picture of the sun. You could make a picture of the sun pretty nice in a GIF because it's mm-hmm. yellows, reds, oranges, and you can have... 256 grades of those colors it'll look mm-hmm. relatively good but at the edges it's going to look right. very bad because if you think about how the edge of the sun looks the fuzzy you know burning of hydrogen the occasional <laughs> solar flare whatever like it gives it a uh, that little bit of not normal edge that's not going to show well with with yeah. the gif so but still useful small file size is the yes. the big reason that it, it works really well the the compression on it is incredibly good and yeah. it, and i mean arguably there are better you know there's better compression out there but it's still very good for what it is and still very useful if you think about what it is you have a table of 256 colors up to that defined for a file and then you map each one of those colors to one value and then you just have a grid and the grid just says each of these, you know, each of these pixels is this color from this list of 256 colors. So we mentioned that the, the next big evolution of, of image formats came in 1992 when JPEG was uh, released. Mm-hmm. JPEG was a huge leap ahead because it was an 8-bit image format. Yeah. Now, I say that. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, GIF is 8-bit. And if you're listening to us and you're thinking I'm crazy, you are correct, but <laughs> I'm not wrong. So JPEG is actually 24-bit. People right. will refer to it both ways. And the reason that is, GIF is a true 8-bit file format. It supports up to 256 or 255 in an alpha, mm-hmm. and that's it for the whole palette of the whole image. Right. The reason that gets confused in JPEG is because it's it's eight bit per pixel, uh, right? For for its RGB value, so it's it's eight bit nominally per channel, but it's twenty four bit as a consequence because it's eight times RGB. Right. That's super weird. I know. Don't get <laughs> too hung up on it. There's also, if you really want to get confused, technically there is a update to the jpeg uh, algorithms that supports 12 bit per channel mm-hmm. uh but that's i don't know even know what support is like for that in browsers if it is or not or if it converts it uh both gifs and jpegs are lossy you'll hear that yeah. word thrown around a lot there's lossless and lossy bitmaps i mentioned earlier bitmaps are lossless right 
TIFFs are lossless. You'll see TIFFs right. sometimes like in your operating system. Uh, you won't see them on websites because of that. They're lossless, which means a big image is a huge file size because right. there's no compression. Every right. single pixel's color is defined in its full value, and that's it. They're great for when you have like a like a raw file, like a um, you took a photo of something yeah. and you want to have the original source file before you edit it. Yeah, you don't want to manipulate an interpreted file. Uh, right. That's why yeah, photographers will talk a lot about shooting in raw and editing in mm -hmm. raw, and then you output that because if I edit a JPEG file, it's like MP3s, right? Anything yeah. in MP3 is a lossy audio format as opposed right. to FLAC. FLAC is a lossless audio format. So MP3 starts looking at the frequency response of the file and says, oh, there's all these frequencies the human ear really can't hear or anything, so we're going to throw all those out. And We could round these ones off to roughly this. And, right, and yeah. by and large, that's fine. Like that, mm -hmm. You can get away with that for most things, but if I'm the editor, if I'm the source... I may want to take those really low values and boost them or something like right. that and bring them into the range. If I edit the MP3, that stuff's already gone. And yeah. so I can't, can't bring do, it back. You can't really remaster an MP3. So in, in the world of images, like JPEGs, pings, GIFs, anything that's, uh, that's a lossy format, especially when you get into blacks and whites is where mm -hmm. you really see this. Blacks and whites can have a high dynamic range, but after you've saved that file that's where you're going to see a lot of compression and you're going to lose that color. So uh, when you, when uh, on the web, when we used to want to do like, maybe you wanted to have, let's say you wanted to have like a billiard ball on your website. And so you want to have like just a sweet looking eight ball in the middle of your page for whatever reason. If you did it as a shife, then it's, it's going to have kind of a blocky looking exterior. You might be able to do some like, a little bit of like uh dithering or anti-aliasing on the edges if you have enough colors available but it's it's gonna look a little rough a jpeg might look fine but you might still have that halo effect remember those where yeah. like the um it, it, if you don't if you put the image over top of something it doesn't have exactly the same background color as whatever you, background color you used for the jpeg it's gonna look it's going to look off just um, by the slightest bit, but you'll notice it. Yeah. Yeah. But with ping, ping has an alpha channel. And so now you can have that ball and then the ball can have its own, like, like the edges of the ball can anti-alias into an alpha channel and you can put it over top of anything and it'll look like it's just floating there. Yeah. So JPEG a, it's roughly a 10 to one compression ratio, give or take. Mm. So if you were comparing a JPEG to a bitmap of the same image, it's basically 10 kilobytes versus 100 kilobytes, give or take. Right. There's a lot of things that influence that number. The other thing to think about is anytime you're working, and this is true with pings, it's true with JPEGs, anywhere you've mm -hmm. got lossy compression, but JPEGs in particular, because they are a big fan of like the quality level as a means of determining right. how aggressively it compresses it. If you work in Photoshop or something like that, you'll usually get asked that question when you're saving it. Well, what quality level do you want? Now, I think uh, Photoshop abstracts that out to like a 12-step, a like quality right. 1 through 12. But really, it's like a 0 to 100 kind of situation. Um, and so it can be interesting balancing because what you'll find is the human eye, 
is very forgiving. It's like the human ear with MP3s. Yeah. You actually can compress these things way down and usually still have it look okay. You but, can take it down to about 60 or 70% and you probably won't notice any yeah. difference. 75 is my default. I start yeah. at 75 and go from there for everything oh, for the most part. And the the file size savings on that is huge. Like it'll go from 300 kilobytes down to like 80 kilobytes. It'll drop fast and yeah. you won't even notice any difference. D- depending on the image. The eight ball, yeah. that's probably true. A scene yeah. on the beach with people running around and um, sure. colorful umbrellas. like Because again, it's, it's all about data. It's a data compression yeah. thing. If most of your color is blacks and grays, it's going to be able to compress it much more efficiently than an image yeah. with a ton of detail and colors and everything. So if you had like like a, a high res photo of like a bubble where it has the iridescent like lots of rainbowy colors and things, you might notice it with that. So we move into pings. Now pings are a newer invention. I don't I didn't look up when they released, but I know it's been in what probably the last 10 years. Oh, longer than that. 2003 it became an international standard Ah, 2003 yeah there we go yeah so yeah that's 16 years ago um ping supports multiple bit depths so there's ping 8 there's ping 24 which is basically a Mm -hmm. jpeg there's ping 32 ping 48 and general like you they most people find that a ping 8 of the same image that you have of a gif Mm-hmm. is usually going to give you like 10 to 30% size savings. Yeah. Now this becomes less true as you go up in quality. Again, like if you mm-hmm. go to ping 32, that image if you compare it to a jpeg will always be bigger because you're storing more data. Right. Uh and so it, it's a little bit more needy, I guess, in terms mm-hmm. of understanding how to tweak it and how to get the best performance out of it. It is better in most cases. It's usually up to 30% smaller in truly optimized situations. Uh, it's generally viewed as better for anything that's photo-related. Like just the mm-hmm. general compression is better, so you won't see as many artifacts. You won't see like any like weird uh, fragments of stuff around the edges of colors and things, and and like chromatic aberrations and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So and if you if you need transparency you must use it. Yeah, and so transparency yeah. is an absolute uh, must have if you want to go with something complex and mm-hmm. something that has fuzzy edges, but alpha is only supported in the 32-bit format of the ping. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. as a consequence, you are already saving that image in a standard higher than JPEG. So, there's right. no and if you've ever looked at it like Transparent PNGs are huge. Like, the file size on them is enormous. And so you want to use them very sparingly. Like, you need to make sure that you're using it for the right use case and paying attention. Because it will trap you um, very quickly, uh, especially from the standpoint of automated systems. And we're going to talk about this in a a minute. That when you get into tools that, like, save additional versions of an image for you, like, resized, Mm -hmm. if whatever you're using or whatever that tool is using to resize and optimize that image, there are many times where it's a, it creates a smaller file that is bigger in file size because mm-hmm. it doesn't know and it can't make an intelligent decision about how to um, adjust for that. And, and ping is particularly bad about that. I've found. Yeah. There are two more formats. One is SVG. SVG is the vector. So up until now, GIF, 
JPEG, PNG, those are all raster formats. They're all designed for imagery, for photos, for art, right. for things that are representative of a true creation. SVGs mm. are designed to be small. They're designed to be very crisp all the way around. They scale perfectly regardless of the size, and they are entirely built with math. Yeah. They are, they are a mathematical representation of imagery as opposed to a pixel representation of imagery. You can you can get a surprising level of detail and even complexity with SVGs. I've seen some really impressive ones that, you know, they looked... Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, going back to the screen printing analogy, I, you know, a lot of T-shirts are screen printed. But, I mean, you know, it's, you know, if it's three colors, there's three different screens. It's the same thing with SVGs. Like, you know, you have a bunch of pen pads that are kind of defining the shape of something, but um, you can still get a lot of uh, depth in that. And SVG, for that very reason, if you've got your business logo, like I've got the the Drunken UX um, little emblem, and -hmm. if I want to put that on a sticker that's three inches by three inches and then put it on a shirt that's 12 inches by 12 inches, if I stretch that up in raster from the three inch, it's going to be all blurry and ugly and nasty looking. But with, Mm -hmm. with raster graphics... I just grab the corner, stretch it up, or tell uh, Illustrator I need this to come out 12 inches, and it looks perfect because it just scales the math up. Now, in my opinion, and somebody may disagree with me on this, and, and you're perfectly welcome to, I don't find Vector easy to work in. But I'm also not a designer, and I'm just bad at art in general. <laughs> I, I can use Photoshop. Like, I get Photoshop. I, you know, it it's very fuzzy feeling. Like, it's... It, mm. It's more of a, uh, I guess, a forgiving medium. When you're working <laughs> in Illustrator or Inkscape, I mentioned earlier, Inkscape is an open source uh, vector software that you can use. Mm-hmm. You know, you're having to define those lines and shapes and all of that, and it it gets very funky, especially when you're overlaying stuff or stretching things. It's very good for so much stuff, you know making text flow around a funky shape or something like that. Like yeah. there's fantastic tools for all of it. I just find it very difficult to use because my brain doesn't operate in that space. quite <laughs> Right. Uh, it's very, if you look at an SVG, it's also very different. When you look, if you try to open up a JPEG in a text editor, it just looks like garbage. If right. you open up an SVG in a text editor, it looks like code. Yes. Because it's XML. it is. Yeah. Yeah. SVGs are just an XML document exactly like HTML is an XML document. Right. So it is editable by a human. Now, I don't know of anybody who actually writes SVGs from code, I, but I'm sure somebody does. I, the The actual code that's defining the SVG, it might be good to think about that as being kind of like uh, the code is defining a connect the dots picture. Right. And then the browser then connects the dots. Correct. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. The place where this comes in well, obviously we mentioned logos, things like that. Um, don't and, and get out of the idea of thinking shirts and stickers. Think about it, your mobile device versus a Retina Display MacBook versus a 2K monitor. Mm-hmm. CSS pixels uh, is a thing mm-hmm. versus physical pixels because with like Retina Displays, these high-density displays... They've started using oh, right. virtual pixel size because you want to load higher resolution imagery even though it's physically shown at the same size because they can make it clearer. 
Right. SVG has just always solved that problem because it just scales. It scales perfectly regardless. Um, right. And so it, it takes some of that work out as well if you're if you're thinking about that. But if you are doing pings and JPEGs and you're designing for you know an iPhone or or a MacBook something where there's high resolution, you'll see this like two X. You'll see mm-hmm. that a lot as a suffix on images two X um, as a means of of defining those images, and they're exact. They're twice the size exactly. Right um, now, the reason this is good though, then the reason this is beneficial to web developers is usually SVGs are incredibly tiny. Uh, yes, they they beat GIFs, they beat PNG eights across the board for simple imagery. They make great logos because, again, that means they scale perfectly everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're also great for if you're doing any kind of build process. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're building web components or styled components or if you're doing something CSS and JS or you're just doing plain CSS. Mm-hmm. You can get your SVGs built into that build process so that you don't have a folder with 300 JPEGs in it. Right. They can just be compiled into the JavaScript or into the CSS as data streams. What I think, I remember seeing this before. I think you could define multiple SVGs in a single file. Yes. And then reference yep. the different named SVGs. Because I remember um, at a previous job, we had a whole bunch of logos and things defined in a single SVG file, and it, which was great because then it's just one thing you load and yep. then you have access to a whole bunch of different art. Art files, kind of like a sprite sheet, but different. Yeah, but the idea is <laughs> somewhat similar. Yeah, more like an uh, 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 a card index almost. Yeah, and this is also uh, because they are what we call data URI friendly. So if you've ever mm. seen in in CSS, usually um, like a background image, rather than using a URL reference, they'll use a data URI reference, and it's oh, it's like Base sixty four encoding. It yeah, or something. they encode yeah. it in Base sixty four which mm-hmm. usually for SVGs makes that string very short. Technically, right. JPEGs, GIFs, PNGs, they can all do that too. But the problem is those files are usually so big that yeah. even Base64 encoding them and cramming them into CSS makes the CSS a whole lot bigger, whereas the yeah. SVG genuinely gets smaller doing that. It's... Now, the one thing that you want to make sure you do if you use SVGs to, is make sure you're optimizing them and not just pulling them straight out of Illustrator or Inkscape because... As an XML document, they tend to have a lot of metadata stored in them. They tend to have a lot of extra information from the editor stored in them. And there are mm-hmm. some good tools. Uh, SVGO, SVG Optimize, is a good okay. uh, build chain tool that can go through and it strips all that out. It optimizes the the path uh, math and all that nice. and makes them smaller. And some things, like if you're doing something like styled components or... Um, you know, if you're working in React with Gutenberg and WordPress, mm-hmm. um, you have to have your SVG formatted a certain way. So mm-hmm. you, you do have to be aware of some of that. SVG is kind of the way all of that's going. Anything icon-based or anything, because again, in this idea of reducing the number of HTTP requests, mm-hmm. if your website or web app has 100 icons in it, and you can just define those in your CSS file, as opposed right. to making them each individual files then it's one request for the CSS file as opposed to one request for the CSS file and 100 requests for all these SVG files. Right. So, yeah. uh, But still also benefits from gzip and all of that. The last image format I'm going to talk about very briefly, just to make you aware of it, is WebP. 
Now, WebP truly is the new guy on the block. It came out in 2010. Mm -hmm. It was the format that Google came out and was pushing really hard. Isn't this a video format? Uh, WebM is the video version. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Now, WebM, I think, has found a little bit better adoption um, as a mm -hmm. video format, though it's still spotty from a support standpoint. Yeah. WebP is arguably better than all the other image formats in its class as like raster. So not talking about SVGs, but all the other ones, yeah. they claim 25 to 34% savings in file wow. size. Um, Damn. Image quality at that same uh, price point, so to speak, is better. Mm -hmm. But the problem is no IE11 support because it's IE11 and it's not going to go back and add support. Safari doesn't support it. Huh. And so you end up what you have Wait. to... Doesn't Twitter use this format? Or Twitter did? I remember seeing, like, when you would embed an image on Twitter, it, it would um, convert it. Download it. Yeah, it would be like a WebP file. That's possible. Um, yeah. Um, the solution a lot of people have found is to use a, a picture element with mm -hmm. source elements inside it, and they'll define a WebP image if that's what your browser supports. Otherwise, it'll fail to a JPEG. Right. The thing is, that's a lot of extra implementation work if you want to do that, and you're now having to save that image twice in two different formats. If you're willing yeah. to do that work to get that support, that's fantastic, um, and you can reap the benefits. You still don't get IE11 support regardless. It's just it is a matter of extra work. If you're interested in it, I'm going to link an article up from Free Code Camp that explains how you can implement WebP and some of this stuff like using the picture source uh, combination. Mm -hmm. Nice. I I don't recommend it only because I it, I it makes me think of Mean Girls. It's fetch. <laughs> it's it's fetch. That's web, stop trying to make WebP happen. Stop trying to it's make WebP happen. happen, Google. It's it's just not. It's not going to happen. <laughs> okay, let's talk about resources and then tools and get uh, the hell out of here. Uh, resource wise, if you need images for your website, because we all run yeah. across, especially if you do any blog writing or anything like that, or you're you know, you're doing a, a image show or a, a feature showcase and you want happy looking, smiling people. <laughs> do me a favor and please don't go steal pictures. Yes. Um, don't do that. That makes you an asshole. Yes. Um, there are a lot of really good resources to get really good photography and it's mm. free and you are allowed to use it. So go use those. Um, one of my favorites is Unsplash, unsplash.com. Uh, if you have been following the Drunken UX podcast, most of our cover art comes from Unsplash. Oh, cool. The image quality oh, wow. is Damn. incredible. You yeah. can download stuff in like, you know, 12 megapixel size. It's, you know, you can get fully uncompressed imagery. Uh, it's all public domain open licensed uh, some I, I may get that wrong and I apologize if I get the actual wording wrong it's open licensed for sure I think it's all public domain meaning you don't have to credit the people right. I, I will however say it is very nice if you do that uh, and it is appreciated <laughs> if you do that we make sure on like on, on the imagery I when I load it into WordPress I make sure to include a little byline on it um but Unsplash is fantastic. They've got a great search. It's usually very accurate. The quality is very good. And I'll tell you right now, even if you don't know what Unsplash is, I guarantee you 100% you've seen images from their website somewhere. 
No, uh, these are amazing. Yeah. Like, these are really good images. <laughs> and people donate them for use. So go go check them out. Go check out Flickr Commons. Um, there's a site that says flickr.com slash commons, or you can go to just Flickr and go to the search, and you can change the license type to Creative Commons and find nice. images that you may have to give attribution. That uh, may not be uh, available for commercial use, but you can filter. You can say, I need images for commercial use. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it'll be like a, if you aren't familiar with Creative Commons, it's basically a extension of copyright that lets you define, I I let people use my stuff, or I let people use my stuff, but mm-hmm. they have to attribute me, or they I let people use my stuff to make money, whatever. Right. It's a few canned, you know, versions of that license that you can pick from, but you can go there, look up the images. Worst case scenario, you end up having to make sure you have a credit for it. Let's face it, that's the least you can do. We talked about this a while ago, right? Different licensing schemes. Oh yeah, with uh yeah, uh with the open source stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um Wikimedia Commons is another resource. It's very similar in nature. Uh, I think it, most everything there is uh, public domain or open licensed. Magdalen, uh Magdalen was a new one to me. Uh, I haven't used it before, mm-hmm. but it's it's magdalen.co. We'll have a link to it as well another photo mm-hmm. uh, service. And worst case scenario, go to the federal government. Go to federal government websites because most all the imagery they put up is all public domain. Like if you go to NASA and go to the photo archives oh, on yeah. NASA, everything they put up is public domain because it's the federal government. It's all You've already paid for it basically. Right. Uh, and, you know. <laughs> tax dollars at work. And a lot of that, especially <laughs> the NASA stuff. Like I'm I'm a big fan of the NASA stuff and I like making like space wallpapers and stuff. So being able to go get Hubble stuff is fantastic. Just make sure wherever you go, always try to give credit. Even if you don't have to, mm-hmm. it is nice to give credit uh, when when you're using somebody's stuff. Um, always double-check licensing. This is an, an important yes. one, too. And that's why I said earlier, like, if I'm confusing public domain and open license, they're, they function very similar, but they aren't the same. So there's there's the uh, the Wiki, Wikimedia Commons has either GFDL, which is the new free document license, and there's also public domain, and any images uploaded to the Wikimedia Commons have to be one of those two. And the public domain is just like like uh, NASA images. You yeah. just you can use them. They're just there for you to use. Whatever Pu- public the way, domain the way is people... truly free. Yeah, free as yes. in beer and speech. It's the way that people usually use Google Images, but you're actually allowed to use it in that way. <laughs> yeah. Notice <laughs> yeah. I did not say use Google Image Search as one of those resources. <laughs> that is not one of the tools you use. Uh, GFDL is the default um, for Wikimedia Commons, and that one is basically like public domain, except you have to attribute the source. Yeah. Copyrighted, um, you can't use. Right. You, well, well, you can. You have to contact the content creator. Right. And get permission, but and nobody does set that. The terms, yeah, right. Nobody does it. Like you, just because something is copyrighted doesn't mean you get to use it and say it's copyrighted by the person. You can't do that. that right. Don't do that. No, you you actually have to get permission from the copyright yeah. owner in writing first, ideally. Yes, and the, and they and they can set the terms, which may require compensation. It might require you, you know, attribute them a certain way, or that you can use it certain ways. But they they have they control the rights on how that's used. Yeah, and Creative Commons is great, but there are a lot of combinations of those attributes by NC mm-hmm. SA all those things. So make sure if you're looking at using a Creative Commons ish, uh, image, 
what the license is that it's released under, especially the NC version, no commercial. Also, the ND one, no derivative. Oh, yeah. No derivative is another important one. Which means you can use it, but you can't modify it. You can't it. change it. Uh, yeah, yeah. That is that is another important one. Uh, it's Take the time and, and look. It really it, This isn't legalese. It doesn't take a lawyer. It just takes right. you spending 15 seconds to make sure that what you're using is right. The thing about copyright is shit rolls downhill. Uh, so... In a similar way, like royalty free is not the same as unlicensed. Right. Um, you'll see a lot of stuff, and you see this a lot in the audio space if you look up royalty free music. And you'll see these mm. songs, and the song says, Yeah, for buy it for nine dollars. And then mm. you're like, But wait, it says royalty free. Why do I have to pay for it? <laughs> royalty free and unlicensed aren't the same thing. Royalties are just what you have to play every time it's used, right? right? And yeah. if you pay for it, then you have unlimited use of it in most cases. But like right. it, what happens is, let's say a sound effects library has 100, or let's, let's use a, an appropriate deal. I'm buying a photo library of wildlife, right. let's say, and everything in that album is $100. But once I have it, I can use all of it or none of it as much as I want. I don't have to worry right. about all you know, individual attribution or anything at that point. I don't have to put a byline on it. I don't have to do anything, but I still have to pay for it. Because I still have to have that license to use it. Right. If I go torrent that photo album and then proceed to use it on my website and a photo owner says, hey, I saw you're using my photo, um, which site did you end up buying it off of? And you can't answer that question. Right. You can be held liable for copyright uh, infringement because what has happened is the company that puts those libraries together paid the copyright holder for their license to in turn <laughs> sell it quote unquote royalty free. That does not mean it is now public domain. Right. That's where this gets a little hairy, but that's why I say it's important. I say uh, shit rolls downhill. If, if you use, let's say a uh, company A hires you to build mm -hmm. a website. So you go out and you find some images to put in that are placeholders. They aren't meant to stay there and you just right. get placeholders and put them in. If they decide to launch that site and they don't bother replacing those images and you didn't have permission to use them to begin with, <laughs> you didn't care because you're like, well, nobody's – I'm just – it's clearly – it's just demonstrative. I'm going to take them out, whatever. Uh, you know, the harm to the content author at that point is, uh, you know, nothing, uh, though technically still copyright infringement. The owner of those images may see that. And they get to sue the business because the business is displaying it. The business is the terminal point for the copyright infringement. But <laughs> that business can then turn around and sue you as the person they hired. They can sue you for the damages that they incurred. And then if you hired right. somebody to get you those images, it would be your job to go sue that person for their damages. It rolls downhill. Um, and... I say this as somebody who has been in this fight with an organization <laughs> that stole my pictures, displayed them in their business, but they had hired another company to procure images for them. I oh don't, my God. it's not my job to go after the chain and figure out where the buck stops. I get to right. sue the first person, but then that, it, those folks can then go on. Now there's a whole bunch of contract shit that gets involved, liability yeah. statements and all of this that come into play. But that's the basic premise. So I say this just to make sure people understand. 
don't assume that you are insulated from copyright infringement because it's not your site. I I think just a general rule would be if the image doesn't if you don't see somewhere that's that the image explicitly says yes you can use this on these terms or yes you can use this openly or publicly if you don't see that affirmatively stated somewhere assume you can't yeah. use it and keep a record of it i know it's a lot of yeah. extra work and a lot of hassle especially if you go through a lot of imagery but keep a record of it uh, mm -hmm. that's why i go back to what i say when i upload photos from unsplash into wordpress i make mm -hmm. sure in uh in the alt text area the description area one of those um, that I include the byline and everything in it, so I always have that reference point. So if somebody comes back and says, hey, that, that image was stolen from me, I can say, yeah, but here's where I got it from. Here's the attribution. Here's, you know, when I got yeah. it. And at that point, and too, like, I'm not going to use that as a defense. If that's the case, I'm going to take it down and whatever. If they want to sue me over right. it, that's fine. We'll have that fight. But at that point, I at least have a defense where I can say, look, I'm getting it from a site. You were acting in good faith. Yeah, I was acting in good faith. Yeah. I was getting it from what I thought was a reputable source. You know, if the if right. that user at that point was copying something or whatever, it's it is hard to know, and it doesn't happen often. That's, you know, it, it is fairly rare. Yeah. But the way right. the best way around this, guys, is and gals, is to use placeholders and like genuine placeholders. And I've got two right. favorites. My all time <laughs> favorite is Phil Murray. I've never seen Phil Murray before, but I just looked and I love it. Yeah, it's it's just random pictures <laughs> Wait, of so, Bill Murray, and these are all like o like open license, like you can just use them. That's an excellent question, good sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, after everything we just talked about, now I have to question whether or not I can use Phil Murray. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you just need like a, like images for a development or testing environment or something like yeah, i'm sure it works fine i'm gonna presume but. that bill murray doesn't care enough to come after folks for this um but right. here's the thing here's the nice thing about it if you're using it for development environments or to show something to a client they're not gonna launch the site with bill murray's face all over it <laughs> i would hope so not. <laughs> it encourages them to remove those images and put their actual stuff in the place and all you have to do is just you just put in the url philmurray.com slash like image slash 200 slash 300 and you get a 200 by 300 bill murray image yeah um, place kitten is very similar place kitten uh uh just does the same thing with kitten images and there there is another one i don't know it off the top of my uh head that will do placeholder images that just put a gray box with a number that's placeholder.com oh, literally placeholder.com okay it was formerly called placeholder.it uh dot it that no longer works, but it's called placeholder.com now. Yeah. Um, and it shows the, – the one thing I do like about this one because I used it on our previous project is it – I mean it's a banal image and also encourages the site owner to yeah. actually but, replace it. And you can, but it shows the dimensions. And you can add uh, text overlays to it. Yes. And so you yeah. can have like this is the featured product image or the featured blog header or whatever. Like you can you right. can put little notations on them that also say what that image should be of, which can be useful right. for for content people. Yeah. Um from a tool standpoint, at the end of the day, what do you do with all this information? Cuz obviously, author and what you want to author, is it Photoshop, is it Inkscape, whatever? You use mm -hmm. what feels good to you. Use the tools. Do you want to use a Wacom? Do you want to use a, a, a iPad Pro? Do you want to use just your mouse? Whatever. Um but to make sure you're doing well, and for, uh, keep in mind, from an optimization standpoint, there's going to be a lot of stuff we haven't referenced uh, in this episode. But 
There are mm-hmm. a bunch of links to some optimization articles in the show notes uh, at drunkenux.com. So go check those out. Those will be very helpful. Yes. Um, but Chrome and Firefox, and yes, IE, but who cares? Uh, Chrome and Firefox have a great network inspector. If you go in there, right-click inspect element, and then click the network tab, you can see everything loading on a page, and you can filter that down to just images and see how much you know is the payload right. of your site. The, my whole site is a megabyte, and images are 238 kilobytes of that. And then it's up to you to decide, can I optimize that? Is it worth right. optimizing? If I can get that... 238 down to 20 hell yeah that's worth optimizing if i can get that 238 down to 200 and my site's only a meg yeah maybe not the highest priority right um but those are great tools it gives you a good idea of what's loading it lets you compare yourself to other sites real easily go load any site go load cnn go load fox news go load ebay whatever and compare you know to see how they go uh there are a ton of like performance checking sites. Google PageSpeed is the obvious one, but there are a mm-hmm. bunch of others, whether that's Pingdom, whether that's uh, Optimize, uh, Optimizely, whatever it is. Uh, but they all do basically the same thing. You give them your URL, they'll go check your site and tell you the same thing Network Inspector is basically telling you. Um, yeah. Usually some of them, like, like PageSpeed and, and, and some of these in Pingdom, they will also give you advice. Or they will point out like specific like problem images sometimes. Like if they huh. if they see like a bit depth on an image that doesn't look like it needs it, um, it'll say something like you could save Oh nice. You could save twenty kilobytes compressing this image, which is kinda cool. <laughs> That's really cool. If you just Google uh like page optimization scanner or page speed scanner mm-hmm. or checker or whatever, you're gonna get a dozen of these tools and they're all pretty much the same. They're pretty good. They Use very similar uh, algorithms to check stuff. Um, we'll link the page speed scanner. Uh, let's see. What else? If you're an SVG person and you want to get all your SVGs in one place, there are a few packages. One of the better ones is Gulp SVG CSS. Does that turn the SVGs into CSS? Yeah, so it you okay. point it in your Gulp config if you're using Gulp as a build uh, pipeline tool. Mm-hmm. You set it up to utilize this in your pipe. You pipe your uh, your do- or directory into it. You say, here's my my SVG directory, and it'll pull everything in. It'll, in theory, it, it, it does some optimization. It's, a, it's sort of some light hand optimization. There's another uh, S- SVGO package that you can use mm-hmm. as well that does some heavier optimization. It's a little riskier because, you know, it may take something out you need. Uh, always check this stuff afterwards, obviously. But <laughs> it'll it reads in a directory of SVGs and then compresses them into one CSS file you can reference. So that's good, you know, for if you do any kind of build, you know, JavaScript applications or anything like that. You want to get all those SVGs mm-hmm. in one place, one reference point, utilize classes, and go. Like, that's the best way. Nice. If you want to do it just... From an application side, uh, PNG Crush is one that most people have ran into at some point. Uh, it's a command line tool. There's also a website that I think is just pngcrush.com. And I think it'll actually do JPEGs and, and anything else as well. But huh. it, it'll it do things like one of the, my favorite deals with it is like if you've got a PNG32, it can 
crush and convert it into a PNG eight if it thinks that it can do that and still maintain quality levels and stuff. It's really good at finding all of that extra space, right? Huh. Cool. Uh, uh, the uh, PNG Crush, the SourceForge page, actually mentions another tool that I found, um, Image Optim. It's, uh, it's spelled just like it sounds, image, com, which is a tool that just it optimizes images for you. So it, you give it an image, and then it will... I, I believe it determines the format and the settings based on the profile of the image, but it uses PNG Crush though. Yeah, in it. Um, if you're a Windows user, I don't know if this actually. I'm. I, I use Windows. I develop in Linux, but most of the stuff because I only have Photoshop, so I do that in Windows. Um, I've used a tool called IR Fan View. Mm-hmm. It's an image viewer, but it's really high powered, and it has some really great hmm. bulk conversion resources in it so you can point it like at a directory and say hey you know here's this folder of jpegs i want you to rename them resize them scale them down to 70 percent quality and you know there's there are a ton like it's actually a very dense tool when you dig into it very good though yeah photoshop people you literally have a tool in photoshop called save for web I know Photoshop labels it as a legacy uh, feature now, but it's still there. Uh, the, <laughs> the reason I really like it is that if you go into it, if you go to save an image for web, it gives yeah. you a – you can do a two- or a four-up view. Yeah, so, that's handy. Yeah, as we're talking about all this stuff and about optimization and compression and lossy algorithms and all of this, I said early on that one of JPEG's problems is – finding that sweet spot and that sweet spot changes. It's not like just set it to 75 and forget it. 75% quality for one image may be great, but another image you may be able to go down to 20% and it still would look fine. Right. So the two up view in Photoshop lets you say, Hey, I'm saving this for web. Here's, you know, the settings I want at 50% quality. Show me the two up view and you can see the, the before and after and make a decision mm-hmm. right there before you've saved it as to whether or not you need to scale it up or down or turn the quality up or down or whatever. That's great. All these other tools, PNG Crush, IR Fan View, Image Optum, uh, any of these, you have to run everything through the process, then go look at them and pull them up side by side right. manually and everything. So Photoshop kind of helps with that. They, I've, I have used that before and it is really good. Yeah. Um. They. I use uh, anymore because I use Linux for everything. I use uh the GIMP program a lot, and um, it has a like when you're saving, it has preview, and if you have preview enabled, it just like check a box. When you're doing the the quality slider, it will um update the image on the screen per what it will look like at that quality, so you can sort of tell um. You know, if it's going to have any artifacts or anything coming up. Yeah. The very last tool that I'll mention is not an image tool at all. Mm. Get yourself a CDN. Mm-hmm. If you can't make your images smaller or you're not comfortable making them smaller, at least you can make them faster. Yeah. Get them closer to the user if you can't get them smaller. By using a CDN, you get the images cached on fast machines at nodes all over the world so that, you know, if it's a user in Russia and you're in Seattle, you know, in theory, maybe that is coming from a server closer to them. So at least 
the transfer speed is quicker, if not the actual image being smaller. When you're de- when you when milliseconds matter and you're dealing with like hundreds of miles or even thousands of miles, it <laughs> it makes a difference. <laughs> There's a service that we used on a, a, a site that I've worked on. It's called Imagex. I M G I X. Um, it's an image optimizer CDN. So like you you give them the high res versions and then when you reference like when you reference the image from your account with them, it will give down the uh, resized versions of it automatically. Yeah, you know what? I'm looking at this now as you're talking about it. We used to use a service very, very similar to this, and I can't think of the mm-hmm. name now. Uh, they served as a CDN. They also, because mm-hmm. something we haven't talked about at all was responsive imagery, which is a whole other, you know, whole other ball game. But they handled that, so you would use the image references and put a little piece of JavaScript on the page. And with that, it would then reference the right image size for the device you were on, which was kind of cool. Right. So it's you know not lazy loading necessarily, but a similar concept geared towards giving mobile devices smaller data packages. And that's like, that's another yeah. one that some of the articles that we'll have in the show notes, will get into a little bit of that, like, serving up different images to mobile devices and stuff and you know treating that as a more scarce resource so uh, right all the more reason to go visit the website (laughs) folks i hope that this was useful i know that there are a million of you out there that this is rudimentary elementary stuff but not all of you are like that many of you are learning many of you are developers but not designers (laughs) or designers but not developers so i hope that you found this helpful give us your tips let us know what you do to optimize your images or what you found useful or what tools you use especially if you've got a tool or a process that you find really helpful for getting really well optimized images i would love to hear about them let us know we're going to take a quick break and be right back in just a few seconds this episode of the drunken ux podcast is brought to you by something really cool it's an alternative to dot com it's the dot design domain name I'm a big fan of interesting, unique website names. So if you're a designer and you've thought of the perfect name for your website and it isn't available under .com, check out .design. Chances are the domain name you want is waiting for you. Head to porkbun.com and use the coupon code DRUNKENUX on the checkout page to get a free .design domain name for your website. Face it, there are no good .coms left. Years down the road, we're going to care about cool, nice URLs that are relevant to the website you're going to. And the fact that there's so many TLDs to choose from, you really can get a domain name that's right for you and right for your business. Dot Design is a great one. Visit porkmun.com now and use the coupon code DRUNKENUX at checkout and literally get a year of a Dot Design domain name for free. It's bundled with free email hosting, who is privacy, and SSL certs. That's a lot for nothing. Forget dot coms. Dot Design is widely used. There's Airbnb.design, Facebook.design, Uber.design, Adobe.design, and so many more. Google doesn't care. It functions the same way as a .com or .org. It's just more interesting. It's better branding. It looks great on resumes or business cards, and it looks awesome on email addresses. .design reflects what you do as a designer. Did we mention it's free and includes a year of email hosting, who is privacy, and SSL certs, and all of that stuff. Just go to porkbun.com and use coupon code DRUNKENUX at checkout. 
I love the name Fork Fun. It's so great. I, I always imagine like a cute, like, pig, but like in a, I, mean, I guess on a bun, but like a cartoony looking one. That, their logo is actually very satisfying then if you go check it out. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, oh. it's, it's a pork bun, right? It means there's really great things inside. <laughs> you can't go wrong. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, we are... Oh my gosh, it is adorable. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much exactly what I imagined it would be like. Awesome. Okay. Especially since it's just the butt, right? The logo is just the butt of the pig. <laughs> just, don't, just don't tell that cute little pig that I have half a hog down in my freezer down in the basement right now. I'm a, I'm a pig serial killer. <laughs> well, thanks for listening again. And uh, hope you found this handy, useful, etc. I did. I want to go watch that video you mentioned now of uh Oh my gosh. Of the image guy. It's yeah. so good. I really like if you if you did any retro gaming like 90s, it, it's going to be like amazing. It's so cool. Everybody, we appreciate you stopping by. Let us know. Uh, give us your resources, your tools, your advice. Uh, your criticisms, complaints, or anything about the show. Uh, if you want to tell something nice, that's also great. Uh, go click the like button, subscribe button, and whatever app that you're listening to us in. Leave us a rating or review. That's always appreciated. I know that it takes a second of your day, but it makes a huge difference to us that uh, that, that happens. And otherwise, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook at slash DrunkenUX or Instagram slash podcast. Otherwise... Um, you know, as you're sitting there tomorrow and, and you're thinking about images and you're thinking about what you can do to make your website better or faster or more responsive, uh, whether they're on mobile devices or, or gigabit fiber or that old school teleprompter style, whatever it is Aaron has at 100 megabits a second. My God, dark ages is what that is. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think about what would be the best thing to leave you with and the only thing I can tell you is to keep your personas close and your users closer folks on a CDN on a CDN bye bye <laughs> <Here>. <laughs>